The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Progress and Practicalities in Immunotherapy Biomarker Testing and Pathologic Response Assessment in Solid Tumors, What's New and What You Need to Know and Do. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KCV860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning and welcome everybody um, to this um, breakfast meeting about progress and practicalities in immunotherapy biomarker testing and pathologic response assessment in solid tumors. What's new and what you need to know and do. So today we have um, a very interesting uh, panel of uh, speakers, um, the first of which is myself, um, and then Dr. Jonathan Rees. He's a medical director of thoracic oncology and associate professor at UC Davis. And we have Dr. Zeb Weinberg. He's a professor of medicine and surgery um, here at UCLA, um, and he's also involved in early phase clinical research program. Okay, and you can also visit us online at the address indicated there, um, you can view all the slides, the practice aids, and also download the content from the event. Um, so please um, enjoy yourself uh, in person and virtually. So now we're going to discuss a little bit um, the topic. First, we're going to uh, review uh, how to keep up with the rapid vertiginous progress of immunotherapy, biomarkers, and pathologic response assessment, which is an emerging um, situation that we're facing more and more. Uh, then we'll look at the oncology stake. Um, first, uh, we'll look at the role and use of immunotherapy and biomarkers in practice, focusing first on lung cancer, which will be addressed by Dr. Jonathan Rees, and then on GI cancers, focused by Dr. Weinberg. And then finally, we'll close with the pathology stake, and we will discuss how to implement and operationalize biomarker testing using, as examples, PD-L1, microsatellite instability, um, tumor mutational burden, and then we'll do a quick look into the future. So the first part, um, we'll talk about um, how this is moving, um, and I'll be in charge of this. And really what's happening with immunotherapy is uh, fascinating and concerning. Fascinating because over the last five years or so, we have seen massive progress in the number of treatments that are available to patients, the number of indications in which these therapies have been approved, but also in the emergence of biomarkers that are able to somewhat inform about the likelihood of this patient to respond. Despite all this progress uh, and the time lapse, there are still major challenges, including, for example, how to handle PDL1 as a biomarker. Um, there are a number of issues, some of which are indicated in the slide, uh, but also so newer biomarkers that have been already approved, like tumor mutational burden, but we know very little about, and we, it's very difficult to implement and report. So despite this topic being uh, not so new anymore, there are a number of questions and challenges, some of which we're going to address here. And then the mainstream of um, immunotherapy today at the clinical level, it's based on two major pathways um, that are indicated in the slide. The first is the CTLA-4 pathway, which is on the left side of the slide, uh, and which is essentially an immune inhibitory receptor that is present on uh, activated T cells. Uh, and these activated T cells uh, upregulate or, or put this uh, CTLA-4 receptor in the membrane, uh, and the blockade of this receptor can actually inhibit the inhibitory signal and therefore restore or activate T-cell uh, activation. Uh, we believe that this effect occurs, mo occurs mostly on the T-cell priming stage, so maybe outside the tumor bed in secondary lymphoid organs, but it's unclear if there is also a role in the effector stage in the tumor bed. The second pathway, and arguably the most impactful one, is the PD-1, PD-L1 pathway, which is on the right side, 
which is a similarly conceptually uh, mechanistic uh, view. Uh, essentially, it's another inhibitor receptor that gets upregulated in the surface of activated T cells, uh, that it's an inhibitor receptor, and therefore blockade of this receptor is able to reinvigorate T cells to recognize tumor. However, this pathway is believed to be more relevant in the effector stage in the tumor bed rather than in the priming stage outside the tumor microenvironment. But again, there is not complete uh, certainty about the relative function. So these are the two sort of main um, pathways, and, and there are a number of agents that can actually selectively block these receptors and therefore mediate an immunostimulatory anti-cancer response. As I mentioned, the impact of these therapies have been massive, and there are a number of indications and growing indications where uh, PD-1 agents alone or in combination have been approved. And you can see in the slide just a number of indications where there is at least one monotherapy approval. So you can see that really spans nearly the whole spectrum of medical oncology and pathology practice. So really, this has been um, very, very impactful. But then, over the years, there have been developments of combination therapies that try to capture different mechanisms of action and sometimes even synergistic effects. Um, and you can see that no numerous uh, combination therapies with PD-1 agents alone or in combination with targeted therapies, chemotherapies, or even tyrosine kinase inhibitors have been already approved and are in use in multiple different tumor types. And this has raised a number of questions on how to select patients for these therapies. When there is a monotherapy option and a combination therapy option, is there a way we can identify the patient who is most likely to benefit from one or the other? Which brings us again to the need to have biomarkers to use these therapies wisely. Similar to the clinical landscape, the landscape of biomarkers have been quite uh, complex. And this is a slide that summarizes a number of metrics that have been somehow associated with likelihood of response to these uh, PD-1 inhibitors. On the upper side, you can see uh, most of what I call the phenotype or immune-related markers, uh, which include all the way from simple pdl one immunohistochemistry or tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes to very sophisticated uh, measurements of interferon gamma responses, myeloid responses, and even the gut microbiome. Many of these are not completely understood, and they're being progressively developed and somewhat implemented. And then there is a whole layer of what I call genomic, of tumor cell biomarkers that include generally DNA-based genomic metrics, such as uh, microsatellite instability, tumor mutational burden, but there are also discrete mutations in genes that are associated with higher or lower likelihood of clinical benefit, and then there are uh, tumor cell-specific um, additional genomic metrics. So as you can see, this is a very complex landscape, and many of these currently are only metrics, not biomarkers, because to move from metric to biomarker, they need to pass a number of um, clinical steps. Today, from all of this list, we have three biomarkers that have been uh, clinically approved. Uh, one that I considered immunologic, although it scored frequently on tumor cells, which is pdl one immunohistochemistry. And then we have microsatellite instability and tumor mutational burden. Uh, this is where we are today, and we will discuss these uh, three biomarkers in depth. So the other in in incredible uh, situation uh, that has happened over the last uh, few years is the amazing increase in the movement of all these therapies to the early stage, which makes a lot of sense, you know, because in general, in cancer, the earlier the better. Uh, but as, just as an example, you can see here a number of approvals of um, therapies, PD-1 agents or CTLA-4 blockades, 
uh, in the context of adjuvant and neoadjuvant therapy. And you can see here that they spend a number of different tumors. Um, and this is, uh, again, adding pressure to our pathology suites to, uh, be, to be able to handle this uh, neoadjuvant uh, type of pathology, which is slightly different from what we do with advanced stage, where we generally get small biopsies. So we'll also discuss uh, the example um, of lung cancer. And these are, again, more um, approvals. You can see that essentially every agent, nivolumab, pembro, ipilimumab, atezolizumab, each of them have re recently received approval in an earlier stage setting, uh, which, uh, which is uh, impacting the way we actually practice. As pathologies, we are uh, typically asked to handle sam samples in the neoadjuvant setting, uh, but there is actually not a lot of guidance on how to do that. Uh, and the difference may be actually tumor-specific, or there may be even histology-specific. Um, and we will try to address some of those uh, concerns today. But in general, I think as a concept, the most important thing is that pathological response is generally associated with survival. And that's why it's an attractive endpoint to be able to query the response to treatment and also assess what to do after the patient has been treated in that setting. Uh, and in general, we can say that major pathological response accounts for those situations where less than 10% of the viable tumor cells are detectable on pathologic examination. And then there is another concept called pathologic complete response, which is essentially the absence of tumor cells detectable in the expected tumor bed. These uh, definitions are not set in stone. They're actually being act revised and updated regularly. And as I mentioned, they may be tumor type specific and even histology specific. So just, this is just a reference, but we need to keep an eye on further guidelines and developments. The other interesting things is that recent data has suggested that some of these uh, metrics may be actually treatment dependent. Um, and I will touch briefly on that relative to the effect of immunotherapy, targeted therapies, or chemotherapies, and how they can actually impact the specimen. The other important consideration is that over recent time, a number of additional immune inhibitory receptors, or so-called checkpoint receptors, have been also developed further clinically. And there are a number of uh, co-stimulatory signals that are indicated here on the left side of the lymphocyte that can, for which agonistic antibodies can actually produce immunostimulatory response. Um, and many of them have been tested in clinical trials, such as SOX40, GITR, 41BV, or CD137. But there is also additional immune inhibitor receptors that can be blocked, uh, perhaps on top of some of the known uh, actionable immune inhibitory checkpoints. And there are many, such as TIM3, LAC3, VISTA, and a few others. But the most important thing is that some of them have already become standard of care. Uh, and as of a, a couple of weeks, actually, uh, LAC3 became FDA-approved in combination with anti-PD-1. So this is just to show how dynamic this is and how we need to keep um, an eye on these developments. Uh, this is just a little summary of this LAC3. Um, the drug that was FDA approved is called uh, relatlimab, uh, which is this uh, monoclonal antibody that uh, was approved to use uh, simultaneously with nivolumab. So essentially it's PD-1 LAC3 combination therapy, and it blocks in a conceptually similar manner. So this um, relatlimab antibody is able to block the interaction between the inhibitory receptor LAC3 on the T cell and then its ligands, uh, both of which are at this point FGL1 and MHC class 2. Um, so the blocking of this interaction ultimately stops this inhibitory signal and further stimulates T cells to recognize and kill tumor. What are going to be the biomarkers for this LAC3? We still don't know. It's being developed, and I'll briefly touch on that at the end of the presentation. 
but just um, keep, uh, keep there because this drug is being tested in other tumor types and there are other uh, agents to be being developed. This is just a, a summary to, to, to tell you that the, what we are discussing today are, are T-cell-centric therapies, okay? So essentially we're looking to reinvigorate T-cells to recognize tumor, but there are a number of other immune cells that can potentially be harnessed to either stimulate T-cells or, sti or kill tumor cells directly. And this cartoon highlights some of those cell populations. You can see that there are T-rex that can be suppressed. Um, there are myeloid cells, um, there are myeloid-derived suppressor cells, vascular cells, and other things. So really, the complex of immunotherapy is spanning way more than just T-cells, and we should expect to see um, additional developments in the coming years. Um, there are at least two other uh, therapies that have shown um, some level of benefit in the context of trials. Uh, there is, for example, a TIGIT inhibitory uh, antibody that has activity in lung cancer, again in combination. And there are also uh, therapies targeting um, immunosuppressive enzymes, such as CD73. And we heard last year at ESMO from one very interesting result using um, an anti-CD73 combined with an anti-PDL1 durvalumab. Um, so again, um, this is uh, expanding quite rapidly. And finally, there are not only immunotherapies in the form of antibodies that can modulate cells in the tumor microenvironment. There are a number of other forms of immunotherapy that have been actively uh, developed. Uh, and just to mention modalities, so within each of these, there are a number of options, but we have anti-cancer vaccines, even neoantigen-specific vaccines being developed. We have adoptive cell transfer, essentially with autologous T-cells or even modified T-cells, such as scar T-cells. Um, and then we have... Um, bites and, and bispecific antibodies and antibodies that can target multiple signals at a time, oncolytic viruses, and then finally uh, what we've already discussed, immunomodulatory antibodies and cytokines. So this is very, very exciting, very, very sophisticated, and immunology is going to be with us for a while. So now, um, as a summary from this part, I think we have learned uh, that immunotherapies target at least CTLA-4-PD-1, and now a few other immune inhibitor receptors are broadly used and induce durable benefit in a fraction of patients with cancer. But the role of biomarker testing across them needs to be established and hopefully transferred to the clinical space um, uh, soon. The second important point is that biomarkers to select patients for monotherapy and combination therapies are needed, but the field is highly dynamic and it's actually very difficult to catch up with these biomarkers that are approved and then uh, develop further uh, and change over time. Novel immunomodulatory targets show promising clinical activity. LAC3 is an example, but as I mentioned, there are a few others um, down the road and they're very, very close to approval, so we expect to have a few more. A few more. Um, and I mentioned there LAC3, TIGIT, and CD73 as really good examples of this. And then finally, immunotherapies are transitioning to earlier stage, mostly adjuvant and neoadjuvant setting in patients with resectable disease. And this is putting a lot of uh, additional pressure uh, and excitement to in the pathology end to be able to recognize, handle those samples properly and communicate the information to our um, treating physicians to be able to handle those patients well. So now um, we'll move to the more uh, clinical uh, end of the presentation, meaning therapeutic, because obviously everything is clinical. Uh, and this will be uh, about the role and use of immunotherapies and biomarkers in non-small cell lung cancer. And this will be handled by Dr. Jonathan Rees. Um, so please, Jonathan. 
Thanks so much. So, uh, so thank you for joining us on this uh, morning program. And I'm excited to speak with you today about the role and use of immunotherapies and biomarkers in advanced stage non-small cell lung cancer. And what I want to do is build upon the fantastic overview that Dr. Schalper just presented in terms of the role of biomarkers uh, and use of immunotherapy and take it to some cases and show how we have moved from not just the metastatic space in terms of optimizing treatment for these patients, but also into um, earlier stage settings in the surgical setting, neoadjuvant setting, um, as well as with after chemotherapy and radiation in the locally advanced setting. And what I want to do is give a flavor about how we incorporate a lot of these biomarkers, PDL1, TMB, mutations and commutations into our medical decision-making uh, to determine the optimal therapies for our patients because we have a plethora of options in terms of navigating treatment. And so we have monotherapy options where pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, and semiplumab are all approved. Um, and, and the approvals are based upon uh, PD-L1 expression for, as first-line therapy. For example, 1% or more for pembrolizumab, but the benefit is really driven by the PDL1 high, 50% or more. Um, atezolizumab uh, and semiplumab in PDL1 high uh, as well. Uh, and in addition to PDL1 status, we look at other clinical factors such as disease, disease burden, symptom severity, performance status, whether the patients have autoimmune comorbidities that may impact our ability to safely deliver. Uh, immunotherapy drugs, uh, patients' goals of care, and as mentioned, mutations and commutations. For example, patients with EGFR-activating mutations, one of those kind of oncogene drivers not associated with smoking, those patients often do poorly, particularly with single-agent immunotherapy. And we have a number of combination therapies to choose from, uh, dual immune checkpoint blockade with nivolumab and ipilimumab, as well as chemotherapy and immunotherapy uh, combined. Uh, and so in terms of pd one testing requirements in advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, um, you know, many of you are familiar with the companion pd one IHC assays that go with these um, respective immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, 22C3 and 28.8 uh, uh, have been shown to be comparably similar in, in results in you know, SP142 uh, for atezolizumab with the Ventana TC uh, IC assay. Now, as mentioned, um, you know, one of the most pivotal studies in non-small cell lung cancer was in the metastatic setting, which is the Keynote 24 study that showed in patients who have pdl one high uh, tumors with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, you could see a strong separation of uh, pembrolizumab with improved survival compared to chemotherapy in the Kaplan-Meier curve. Uh, and this was a pivotal practice-changing study for us. Uh, so then there was the Keynote 42 study that said, well, let's take PD-L1 positive defined as 1% or more, not the, just the PD-L1 high group. And that also was overall a positive study. But as you can see in the Kaplan-Meier curves uh, broken down by PD-L1 immunohistochemistry, uh, the greatest magnitude of benefit uh, was the 50% or more, just highlighting uh, how that PDL1 high subgroup is a special subgroup um, that has high response rates and improved progression free survival and overall survival to single agent immunotherapy compared to chemotherapy. Uh, so then we evolved to combining with chemotherapy. And so I would highlight this is for non squamous metastatic non small cell lung cancer, looking at chemotherapy with carboplatin and pemetrexid uh, with or without. Um, 
uh, pembrolizumab. And what you can see here, uh, once again, is a, 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 a strong separation of curves in terms of a dramatic improvement in overall survival at two years. Uh, overall survival was 45% in the patients who received immunotherapy with chemotherapy and um, 27% without, so a large difference. Um, overall survival broken down in the panel on the right by, um, by, by pdl one TPS. You could see that pdl one low subgroup and pdl one negative subgroup also substantially benefited uh, with improved survival with chemotherapy and pembrolizumab. Um, therefore, this has become a standard of care for those patients who are PDL1 low, um, whereas for patients who are PDL1 high, either chemo or immunotherapy or pembrolizumab uh, is used. And some of our differentiating factors include things, as I mentioned before, uh, thinking about disease burden, uh, the presence of commutations that may be um, a poor prognostic factors uh, in terms of benefiting from immunotherapy uh, and so forth. And in squamous non-small cell lung cancer, we saw similar results. This was the Keynote 407 study, which is the squamous uh, histology doppelganger of Keynote 189 that used a different chemotherapy backbone pertaining to squamous lung cancer, either with or without um, uh, pembrolizumab, and you could see here once again a dramatic improvement in overall survival and progression of survival, progression-free survival that was observed irrespective once again of pdl one status, higher response rates, improved progression-free survival, improved overall survival. Uh, I would just highlight for our metastatic lung cancer patients, we recently published uh, about a year ago that in that Keynote 24 study, uh, for pdl one high patients with first-line immunotherapy, the pembrolizumab, the um, five-year overall survival was about 33%, so a third of patients. And if you go back a decade or so ago, that was about 5%. So um, we need to do better, but it's been a dramatic sea change in terms of the clinical improvement and survival we're able to bring to our patients, particularly in the subsets that benefit from immunotherapy. As mentioned, there are combinations. There's the nivolumab, ipilimumab, dual immune checkpoint blockade. Uh, Dr. Schopper went through the mechanism for CTLA-4 uh, and PD-1 PD and PD-L1 inhibition. And here you can see compared to chemotherapy alone, looking at these Kaplan-Meier curves of nivolumab and ipilimumab, the dual ICI versus nevo and chemo, uh, PD-L1 1% or more. Um, there was this overall survival benefit of the dual immune checkpoint blockade compared to chemo. Um, as well as looking at the, um, at the, one, at the less than 1%. It's approved uh, by the FDA for 1% or more, although the data also looks um, good in terms of the pdl one negative, particularly with high uh, tumor mutational burden. Uh, so uh, with that in mind, let's consider a case. Uh, so a uh, male, age 69 years old, former smoker, 15-pack year smoking history, good performance status, presented with fatigue, weight loss, uh, diffuse pain is suddenly worsened. Um, he has a three and a half centimeter lung lesion, right lower lobe, bone metastases, adrenal metastases, a biopsy shows lung adenocarcinoma, no targetable genomic alterations, PDL1 high, 60%. And what, what would we do? Um, as mentioned, um, the options are single agent, PD-1, um, pembrolizumab, semiflumab, and atezolizumab, approved in this setting. Um, and, um, you know, that is a good option for these patients. As mentioned, if you need a response 
Uh, oftentimes, chemotherapy added to immunotherapy can improve response rates, so we think about, we think about doing that. Um, they actually haven't been compared head-to-head -head in terms of, for example, pembrolizumab with chemo and pembrolizumab for pd one high, but they're ongoing trials. Um, so that's how we generally manage those patients. If it's pd one lower, as mentioned, uh, chemotherapy and immunotherapy, um, less than 50% um, is, is generally our standard. Um, for pd one 1% or more, nivolumab and ipilimumab is also an option, but um, it actually was, do, with pembrolizumab, was compared to the... Um, pembrolizumab and ipilimumab for pd one high and shown not to be any different in terms of outcome um, and it's more side effects. So therefore for pd one high, either chemoimmunotherapy or pembrolizumab or similar approved pd one or pd one agent um, alone. Uh, so this is how we think of making decisions for our patients. As mentioned, we also look at commutation status that may be um, you know, poor prognostic factors. For example, keep one um, and um, STK11, also known as LKB1, also look at things such as tumor mutational burden that we'll discuss further. And I would also highlight now what we do is now that we have such great data in the metastatic setting, we've brought that up to earlier stage settings. So this is the Pacific trial that was done in locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer that was unresectable. This is the five-year update. And so these patients for stage three non-small cell lung cancer received chemotherapy and radiation followed by consolidation dervalumab, which is a pdl one antibody for the duration of about one year. And you could see once again, five-year overall survival substantially improved statistically significant from about 43% to about 33%. Wide separation of these curves, and this has been uh, a, a sea change in terms of how we treat locally advanced unresectable uh, non-small cell lung, lung cancer. Uh, I would highlight that um, it appears that pdl one positive patients in the subset analysis did better than pdl one negative patients. Um, it is approved in the U.S. Um, regardless uh, of pdl one expression, and that's how I give it to these patients, although I would note um, in, in the uh, European Union, um, it is approved for just pdl one uh, positive patients based upon that subset, but the overall study uh, was positive regardless of pdl one status. Um, now, what we do in, in uh, medical oncology is we have these big advances, and then what we do is, as part of our ranking, ordering, and sorting, and combining, bring it to earlier stages. So we talked about the metastatic setting. We talked about the locally advanced unresectable setting. And what's really exciting now, and what we're getting readouts of multiple studies, is the earlier stage surgical setting. And so, um, you know, this really began um, with, with Dr. Ford and colleagues and others who looked at looking at neoadjuvant nivolumab and other similar immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, in patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer. And you could see here uh, in this study there were major pathologic responses in nine out of the 20 resected tumors. You could see in the plot below uh, the depth of pathologic response and regression. Um, and these responses occurred in both pdl one positive and negative tumors. So this was really exciting to see um, in terms of major pathologic response uh, in patients treated with neoadjuvant nivolumab. Interestingly, radi radiographic response is not necessarily predictive, um, where there can be, for example, in the panel on the left, you can see the pathologic CR in a patient in tumor residual nodal disease. Uh, and then in another patient, the scans with a pretreatment or res resection specimen showing 90% tumor 
um, regressions. So may not exactly correlate in terms of having the changes in the immune microenvironment, which may not be reflected uh, in, this, in the follow-up radiographic uh, imaging studies. Now there are multiple studies of multiple PD-1, PD-L1 immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, in, in, in the neoadjuvant setting before um, surgery, um, looking in combination, including with combinations of chemotherapy. So our standard practice um, for patients with um, stage two or three non-small cell lung cancer that's resectable has been to do the surgery uh, and then give four cycles of adjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy based on an improvement of overall survival in multiple clinical trials of about 5%. Um, so we, we also found doing these studies that giving it before surgery or after with chemotherapy didn't make too much of a difference, but our convention had been to give it after. Uh, but now, um, given the nature of, of kind of immunotherapy uh, being and giving it before um, in terms of having the tumor there, um, there's been a lot of movement to give the chemotherapy with immunotherapy up front. Um, so as mentioned, multiple trials with multiple agents, uh, PD-1, PD-L1 drugs in combination with chemotherapy. Now, the one that's very exciting that was recently FDA approved is the Checkmate 816 study. So this was a clinical trial looking at stage 1B to 3A, operable non-small cell lung cancer with good performance status patients. Patients were randomized to receive chemotherapy with nivolumab, dual ICI with Nevo and Ipi, uh, or platinum doublet chemotherapy. Um, I'm going to focus on the platinum doublet chemo versus Nevo chemo arms. Um, primary outcome of rent-free survival, as well as pathologic complete response. Um, secondary outcomes of overall survival and others. Uh, overall well-balanced population. And as you can see here, uh, a substantial improvement um, in the co-primary endpoint of pathologic CR rate, 24% with immunotherapy and chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone of 2.2%. Um, and so... Um, uh, based, based on that being dramatically improved, um, the Nevo Ipi arm having uh, uh, less um, um, that this was focused on for the further portion of the study. Um, you could see um, the volumab and chemotherapy, uh, just uh, the, depth of path, the depth of response um, in the tumors are much greater compared to chemotherapy alone. Um, and you could see that represented uh, graphically here. Uh, median viable tumor cells were 10% and the chemo-nevo arm, and 74% in the chemo arm. Um, and broken down by stage, you could also see just a dramatic difference with the addition of nivolumab added to chemotherapy um, and pathologic CR rates uh, compared to um, chemotherapy alone, 40% uh, for 1B, and in the mid-20s for 2A to, th to stage 3A, as mentioned, much less for chemotherapy alone. And what's really exciting now is, well, does this translate to a survival benefit? Does this translate to an event-free survival benefit preventing the cancer from coming back? And the answer is yes. So in terms of the other primary endpoint, in terms of event-free survival, the hazard ratio was 0.63, highly statistically significant, median event-free survival, 31.6 months versus 20.8 months. This included patients who were both PDL1 negative and PDL1 positive. And on March 4th, uh, the FDA approved nivolumab with platinum double chemotherapy for, in the neoadjuvant setting for adult patients with resectable non small cell lung cancer. I would note this data has yet to be fully presented yet and will be presented at the upcoming AACR meeting uh, in April.
um, where we look forward to taking a look to diving into the data in terms of PDL1 expression and outcomes and other factors of patients who may preferentially benefit or not. The other study I also want to discuss in the early stage setting was the Empower 010 study. And so this was, as mentioned, our convention prior to, the, to Checkmate 816 was to do surgical resection followed by chemotherapy. And so this study randomized patients, similar patient population, stage 1B, 4 centimeters or more, um, to, to, to 3A, resectable non-small cell lung cancer, to get surgical resection, chemotherapy per our standard, and then patients randomized to the PD-L1 immune checkpoint inhibitor, atezolizumab, versus best supportive care. Um, the primary endpoint was investigator-assessed disease-free survival, and they did a hierarchical statistical testing in terms of their statistical design going to disease-free survival for PD-L1 positive, defined as the TC 1% or more for 2A to, 2 to 3A patients. Um, and then, if positive, to look at all randomized population and then go to look at intention to treat DFS and then overall survival. I would highlight looking at the, the first portion of their hierarchical testing in the panel on the left, you could see in patients who had stage 2 to 3A resected non-small cell lung cancer, PD-L1 positive, TC1% or more, you could see once again disease-free survival dramatically improved by about 13%. Um, looking at the all-randomized population, um, there also was a, clear, was a benefit, although um, um, you know, less of a separation of curves. Uh, and I would note in the, the randomized 1B to 3A, um, uh, there was a trend towards benefit, although statistically it did not meet the threshold boundary for, for disease-free survival. Um, so based upon this data, atezolizumab was approved after chemotherapy and resection for stage 2 to 3A non-small cell lung cancer. PDL1 positive 1% 1 or more. Um, and so um, this was with the Ventana PDL1 SP263 assay as a companion diagnostic. Um, and, and on October 15th, it was approved for adjuvant treatment um, for platinum based chemo for 2 to 3A whose tumors have PDL1 expression at 1% or, or more of tumor cells as determined by an FDA approved test. Um, so that was another significant advance. Both. So now we have approvals both in the neoadjuvant setting and in the adjuvant setting. And then most recently, as of last week, there was the PEARL study, which looked at pembrolizumab, which is a PD-1 immune checkpoint inhibitor, in terms of in the post-surgical setting after surgery and chemotherapy. So a similar study to um, the Empower 010, a tezolizumab study. And overall, um, as you can see in the Kaplan-Meier curve on the bottom left, um, there was statistically significant improved disease-free survival, median DFS of 53.6 months versus 42 months. This also included patients who were PD-L1 negative. As mentioned in Power 010, um, included PD was the approvals for PD-L1 1% or more. For these, the, for these trials, the overall survival data are immature, but that's our ultimate goal is to improve overall survival. Um, and in this study, um, once again, there, there's um, some... Um, interesting uh, data with a subset analysis, but overall the study was positive. So in terms of clinical practice, what to test in non-small cell lung cancer? For metastatic disease, PD-L1 testing is essential. 
um, and also broad genomic profiling for non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, and for a lot of squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, scant tissue specimens, patients who don't have a, a large smoking history, um, broad genomic profiling with NGS is standard. For 1B to 3A, as mentioned based on these studies, PDL1 um, is recommended, as well as EGFR mutations testing, as those patients are unlikely to benefit um, from uh, immunotherapy, but broad NGS is preferred, as mentioned, to inform our clinical decision-making um, in terms of um, some prognostic factors of mutations and co-mutations that may be of benefit or lack thereof. Okay, now we'll move to the third part of the uh, presentations, um, and now we're going to move to the role of uh, uh, and use of immunotherapies in uh, GI cancers, focusing mostly on upper GI, gastroesophageal, and this will be uh, taken by Dr. Seb Weinberg, please. Thank you, and uh, thank you, Kurt, and PureView for having me. So in GI cancers, we know this runs the gamut from extremely uh, heterogeneous group of diseases like gastroesophageal cancer to extremely what we call immunologically cold tumors like pancreatic cancer. So by and large in GI cancers, there's not as big a role of these drugs um, as there is in, in lung cancer, like you just heard. Um, the, out, the outlier has been so far gastroesophageal cancers, and, and we'll go over some of that. Because within the esophagus and stomach, this is in fact a very complex group of diseases molecularly, very heterogeneous, as you can see here. It runs anything from an entirely different squamous histology, which is primarily an esophageal cancer in the upper part of the esophagus, which is mostly in Asia um, and Southeast Asia, versus what we tend to see in the Western world, which is more gastroesophageal junction adenocarcinoma, proximal stomach cancers, versus what is also seen back in primarily Southeast Asia, which is distal body stomach cancer, um, and each one of them has different molecular subgrouping and, and, in fact, behaves clinically differently and responds to treatment differently. The big um, distinction on an uh, epidemiology level is listed here. Esophageal squamous cell carcinoma is a little more common, uh, quite a bit more common. In fact, one of the most common cancers in the world um, in Southeast Asia, which has typically been associated with smoking and alcohol. Um, about half of the patients have what we would consider to be positive expression of PDL1, primarily on the cancer cell surface, whereas adenocarcinoma of the esophagus and, and distal esophagus and, and what we would call the gastroesophageal junction is a very different disease epidemiologically and also is associated with a much lower expression level of, of the PDL1, um, at least by immunistic chemistry. So, Here's our typical case. We have a patient uh, who has a 70-year-old woman with metastatic gastroesophageal junction, adenocarcinoma. Um, what testing, baseline testing, ought to be done at baseline, at diagnosis of metastatic disease, to understand the biology and inform the treatment planning for the oncologist? And, you know, I look at it as we have a minimum of three things that we now ask all of our patients with gastroesophageal cancer to have um, when they walk in the door with advanced disease. One of them is HER2, and this is not the subject of today's program, but certainly HER2 has been standard in gastroesophageal cancer for about 10 years. Typically, immunistochemistry alone is sufficient, although FISH is recommended if patients are HER2 positive. 
IHC for mismatched repair protein deficiency, which we'll talk about a little later. Uh, a critical element for us is understanding the role of microsatellite instability and establishing first if, if, if immunotherapy alone is an appropriate option for patients with gastroesophageal cancer. It's much less common in esophageal cancer and a little more common in gastric cancer and, of course, colorectal cancer, which we'll talk about at the end. And, and pdl one scoring usually utilized not by expression just on the tumor cell surface, but on what is, we all know as combined positive score, which takes into account the reflection of pdl one status on immune cells in combination with tumor cells. Beyond that, we do typically send some patients out for next-generation sequencing, primarily to look at more of the obscure targets. Um, and now, of course, as you'll start to see, um, as we're all starting to see, a lot more blood-based testing is starting to take over, particularly for cancers that are difficult to biopsy, like pancreatic and um, other GI cancers. So what we've seen so far is on the top, on, you'll see that you know, we, we're trying to uh, think about gastroesophageal cancer as having a pie chart with which each cancer is represented and has a subtype similar to how these folks do it in lung cancer now for, for a little while. But it, there's a lot, it's a lot more of a Venn diagram than it is a, a pie chart. And we're going to learn over the next few years what the overlap is of all these biomarkers. Because heretofore, we, we're still not sure exactly um, what the overlap is with a lot of these things. And, and I'll talk about two other ones that are on the horizon. And I listed them on the bottom here because you'll hear about them in the next few years. Cloudin and FGFR2, and these are both drugs that have been tested in patients based on selection of patients on immunohistochemical assays that have both led to positive randomized phase two trials. And that, meant, that means that the randomized phase three trials for both of these drugs, and there are several in development, are already ongoing, and many of them have been completed already. And what's interesting about those two Cloudin and FGFR2 is that they're both companion diagnostics for immunohistochemistry, not genomic-based markers at all. So protein expression on the tumor cell surface is a requirement for um, activity of these drugs. And, and so um, we may get, get even more complicated from a pathological perspective in gastric cancer than we are today as we start to select patients based on even more um, immunohistochemical criteria. So one of the questions in, in esophageal gastric cancer is what do you do with patients after surgery? Typically for many years, patients undergo neoadjuvant chemoradiation if they have esophageal and gastric cancer followed by surgical resection. And, and we did, for the first time, see a big change. For many years, um, after surgical resection, the standard of care was observation. We wouldn't do anything, actually. There's been no evidence that continued treatment helps in the long run. And this uh, study, which was a landmark study in our field published exactly a year ago, um, was the Checkmate 577 study, which looked at nivolumab in patients who have had surgical resection. So after esophagectomies, patients were randomized to either nivolumab or placebo for about a year after surgical resection. And, and the premise is based on all the data you heard earlier, that immune surveillance is particularly important in a disease like this, and this is a big, big global study. And the results here, you'll see a Kaplan-Meier curve showing a very, very compelling disease-free survival, which means some of these patients are going to be cured um, with the addition of nivolumab over placebo. So this led to 
a very quick FDA approval of adjuvant nivolumab, regardless actually of PDL1 expression in the patients who undergo surgical resection for esophageal cancer. Now, we don't have a million studies uh, like these guys in lung cancer who have many drugs approved and many different options. We really don't have any beyond that in early stage disease. You see here, I put a list of the ones that are ongoing. Some of these are, in my opinion, quite redundant. Some of these are, at this point, uh, you know, just another company trying to catch up, which, which isn't really um, moving the field forward that much, in my opinion. But some of them are adding twists to the story. For example, in the patients who don't undergo surgical resection, who aren't candidates for surgery, what do we do with those people? We're trying to answer that question. We're trying to answer the question of, does gastric cancer behave differently than esophageal cancer with these drugs? So there are some really uh, important studies ongoing over the next few years. But by and large, um, the advances in, in gastroesophageal cancer have been in metastatic disease, which is obviously the paradigm by how we, as clinical oncologists, test drugs. We first test them in advanced disease. If they work there, we try to move them up front. If they don't work in advanced disease, then most companies will say, gosh, there's no way this would work in earlier disease, and the drugs are disposed. Um, that's been the paradigm for many years. In any event, this was the largest phase three trial ever done in gastric cancer. It was published also in the last few months. And you can see here that 2,000 patients were enrolled globally. You know, and it sounds um, crazy to enroll 2,000 patients, but when you think about the epidemiology of gastric cancer, it really is globally one of the most common cancers. So a lot of the enrollment of these studies takes place in China, Korea, Japan, where every patient is screened for these cancers and, every, and many, many patients are diagnosed and they have a lot more experience than we do at, at obviously screening these patients and diagnosing them. So in fact, um, what we see is a huge disparity between enrollments in, in the Asian countries versus um, you know, Western Europe and uh, North America. But here, this study was a big, big global study that really focused on the bottom two arms. Chemotherapy alone, which is the standard of care for a while, which has been Fulfox or, or Zelox, versus the addition of nivolumab to chemotherapy. And the primary endpoint of this study was here that uh, was met, and it showed an overall survival improvement of 11.1 months to 14.4 months, which met statistical significance. And they basically approved the drug for anybody with gastric cancer based on the fact that they, they met their secondary endpoint. Now, moving on to HER2-positive gastric cancer, this is another uh, area of, of interest. And in HER2-positive gastric cancer, there really isn't clearly a role to che check for PDL one because, by and large, about 80 to 90% of patients with HER2-positive gastric cancer do have some adequate expression of PDL one at least by immunohistochemistry. So this study randomized patients to either chemotherapy plus trastuzumab plus placebo or Herceptin plus chemo plus placebo versus chemotherapy plus trastuzumab plus pembrolizumab. And the overall survival was the primary endpoint, but a key endpoint here was response rate. And you could see here that in the data set presented, which was just published recently in Nature Medicine, there is a huge improvement in response rate from 52% to 74% in the group of patients who got chemo plus trastuzumab plus pembrolizumab over chemo, trastuzumab, placebo. So this is, this is 
a big response rate endpoint, which wasn't the primary endpoint of the study, but because the response rate was so sufficiently large, um, the FDA also made the decision to approve this combination based on an accelerated approval based on response rate without yet seeing any of the impact on progression-free and overall survival. This is what you see now is, and we were talking about this earlier, the FDA issues approvals without any, sometimes any peer-reviewed presentations even, just based on the, on the data set submitted by sponsors. And, and it's a big sea change in how drugs are available because of the interest of the FDA in getting access for oncologists to these drugs before a, a, a long, thorough review. That, that has mixed implications, as we all know. In any event, um, this, this combination was FDA approved. And, and in truth, if you look at those data sets, it doesn't seem to matter what PDL1 expression is that, independent of PDL1 expression, the group of patients who are HER2 positive gastric cancer do get benefit from that combination. Now, we, we know that, uh, you know, we can use some other tools, and this is just the, uh, you know, a way to, to think about our patients with gastric cancer. We know that CPS-10 is even more stringent than CPS-5, and I, I believe that as, as the CPS score increases, by and large, in this disease, that's where the bang for your buck is of these drugs, and um, we've known that for a number of years. It seems to be more common in certain TCGA subtypes, as you can see here, but most predominant has been demonstrated in a number of studies now in the MSI high population. By and large, if we identify a patient with metastatic gastric and metastatic colon, by the way, those two, and we identify them in advance as being microsatellite instability, which is, in my opinion, the most important thing, the piece of data that as an oncologist we need to know right away, they get immunotherapy up front. They get pemrolizumab or sometimes nivolumab and ipilimumab up front. They don't even get chemotherapy if they're truly microsatellite instable. And that's a, a sea change in obviously how we treat a lot of the GI cancers. Now, colorectal cancer, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this because, you know, the, the subject of this uh, program is pd one and immunistochemistry expression. As far as we're aware, there is no value to that in colorectal cancer. None of the studies have demonstrated that immunistochemical testing of pdl one has any correlation with benefit of this agent, of these agents. Um, by and large, colorectal cancer is still classified based on KRAS or RAS mutation status into RAS wild type, RAS mutated. And then now we are starting to see some subgroups uh, tease out. For example, microsatellite instability, as I mentioned, that's absolutely critical in colorectal cancer, as, as Dr. Schalper will talk about. And also BRAF V600E, which is a point mutation in BRAF, is another critical actionable mutation in colorectal cancer. But we don't see, we haven't seen the value of, of classical pdl one ihc testing. And in fact, across GI cancers, the only circumstance where pdl one status seems to be important is in gastroesophageal cancer. In pancreas cancer, of course, there's no value to these drugs. In hepatocellular carcinoma, which is where perhaps the biggest advantage to immunotherapy has been. There's no role of PD-L1-IHC because the, the drugs work independent of PD-L1 testing it by immunohistochemistry. So it's really amongst the GI cancers, by and large, gastroesophageal, where PD-L1 expression uh, matters. So in, in general, and, 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 and to look at just gastroesophageal, we believe MMR and MSI, NHER2, and PD-L1, and colorectal MMR and MSI is the most important RAS-RAF status and, and starting to emerge um, perhaps HER2 status as well. We also have tumor agnostic criteria like every cancer where the value of microsatellite instability is clear. 
the value of tumor mutational burden, perhaps more controversial, but seems to be some benefit there as well to knowing that information. And then the obscurities or the unicorns such as NTRAC fusion and some of these obscurities that are only available by RNA uh, testing. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Weinberg. So now we're going to move um, to the final part of this um, session, which has to do with how to implement and operationalize biomarker testing and pathologic response assessment in practice. Um, here we are trying to include a number of examples so that we can have a practical view of how this works or how it doesn't work. And PDL1, as we mentioned, you know, has been uh, loved and hated for quite some years now, uh, but it actually works in some disease settings um, and, and context. Um, so it is a tool that we have to deal with. Um, and the fundamental biology about PDL1 is now actually much better understood. So what we know about PDL1, it's, it's a ligand that is upregulated in any cell upon immune pressure. And normally it's a mechanism by which cells that are exposed to an inflammatory environment, they can shut down inflam inflammation to actually survive or limit tissue damage. But what happens in the context of cancer is that when tumor cells are recognized by adaptive immune cells such as CD8 defector T cells, and they get to the tumor to kill it, they produce interferon gamma, which signals to interferon gamma receptors and upregulate PDL1 in the tumor, ultimately protecting the tumor cell from this uh, cytotoxic attack. And this is very important because, in a way, PDL1 upregulation is concatenated with adaptive immune pressure. So the more uh, PDL1 is usually seen in those tumors that are more inflamed or face immune pressure. And this explains why there is some redundancy in this paradigm of inflamed hot tumors being mostly the ones that express PDL1. However, there are some reports about intrinsic mechanism by which tumor cells can upregulate PDL1 even in the absence of interferon gamma or cytokine pressure. Uh, these are not extremely well documented, but apparently include strong oncogenic signaling such as um, PA3 kinase pathway and other um, that could actually upregulate PDL1 in certain disease types. The majority of cases we see are actually those inflamed tumors with T cells, interferon gamma in the neighborhood and, and upregulation of PDL1. But then measurement of PDL1 in, in tissue has been challenging because of the repertoire of assays, cut points, and sample types that can be analyzed. Uh, but there are some common principles that I think span most of the assays and most of the context. One of them is that we need to obviously use a validated IHC assay and proper controls. And this is important because the usual controls that are used in, in pathology, in non-quantitative pathology, are generally not very helpful. Uh, in this case, we need to have um, you know, uh, measurement or, or controls that can attest to the level and not only positive or negative. <clears throat> so generally, we recommend using a number of controls and not only one. A second important principle is that the, the sample should meet pre-analytical requirements. And this is, sounds obvious, but, but it's still a problem in some settings where samples are underfixed or overfixed, and that can compromise immunoreactivity or epitope recognition by the antibodies. A third important consideration <clears throat> is that we need to be aware of the tumor assay specific difference. And this is critical because, as we'll see next, some PDL1 assays are uh, approved in certain diseases associated with specific drugs. So, depending on the tumor type and the expected treatment, we might actually want to develop one assay or one scoring system over another. So, understanding that is critical to be able to handle this correctly. Then, uh, PDL1 <clears throat> is detected both in tumor and stromal cells. 
Um, this had generated confusion because the initial assessments included only tumor cells, but it's clear now that every cell that it's exposed to interferon gamma has the right to express PDL1, and therefore somehow the contribution of PDL1 by other cells can be captured. Um, and then that membrane staining in tumor cells uh, is generally what we see, but it can be cytoplasmic in immune cells. And this is important because a lot of this was sort of inherited from the HER2 era, uh, which was probably the first or second semi-quantitative IHC scoring. And a lot of people got used to score only membrane staining, but when it's scored in immune cells, it actually can be cytoplasmic. It still counts as positive. So this is important to keep in mind. The intensity of staining is not considered. This is another difference relative to her two scoring or other semi-quantitative scoring. So we just score every cell uh, with detectable membrane staining as equal. Uh, and then generally we have to exclude areas with uh, non-invasive disease, which is relevant in more in certain diseases than other. Uh, but I will show you some examples of how this can be problematic. And finally, PDL1 staining can be heterogeneous, and we see that. Uh, particularly in certain tumor types, and the current uh, answer to that problem is to integrate the scores from multiple different areas rather than using a hotspot approach where we we'll just score the highest. So these are the major principles that guide uh, PDL1 assessment. Uh, and then this is the, the landscape of uh, PDL1 antibodies that are listed here uh, from 28A to 22C3. Uh, all of these have received some form of regulatory approval but with different designations. Some of them are called companion, meaning that they're in the label of the drug and they're required to be tested to be able to use that treatment. And some have been designated as complementary, meaning that there is a benefit, the assay is standardized, but they're not uh, in the label of the agent. Um, what we have seen is that the, the scores and, and the type of scoring changes depending on the tumor type. And you can see here examples um, in lung, head and neck, gastric, and so on and so forth. But what has been interesting, too, is how dynamic this is, uh, in which, for example, some uh, FDA approvals have been now retracted, such as the triple negative breast cancer, who is now not available, and that's why it's scratched in the slide. And then we have new approvals, for example, the approval for atezolizumab in the adjuvant uh, resectable disease setting, which is now a 1% tumor cell assessment uh, with an antibody called sp 2 uh, 263, which was not the original companion of atezolizumab. So now we're seeing new indications, and now we're seeing one drug switching to another antibody formerly used by another drug. So it's really interesting how this is evolving, uh, uh, but it, it is there, and I think we need to, to adapt. And then the second layer to this is that uh, each assay and disease context has a different way of scoring tumor cells. In general, the principles are the same. Uh, but there are some that are more popular in certain diseases than others. For example, TPS scoring or tumor proportion score is very popular in lung cancer, particularly with 2022C3 assay. And it's just a reflection of the proportion of tumor cells that are uh, positive uh, relative to the whole population of cells. The second one that is highly popular, particularly outside lung, is the combined proportion score, which is essentially the number of PDL1 stained cells, um, including all of the cells, divided by the amount of tumor cells. And this is uh, very heavily used in the GI context and other disease types. And again, it captures both the tumor cells and the inflammatory cells. And then there is uh, this uh, division of uh, tumor cell and immune cell, 
that it's typically associated with SP142 assay, uh, formerly associated only with atezolizumab, that includes either a, a proportion of tumor cells or an area of inflammatory cells. And I point this out because the inflammatory cell scoring is not based on a number of proportion of cells, it's actually based on the area, which can create some specific problems. Um, so, so now, to give some examples of uh, problems that may occur um, in the context of pdl one scoring, I selected a few cases for, uh, for, for my practice to, to show examples. Um, and a very, very common um, scenario is that uh, both uh, tumor and, and, and immune cells or non-tumor cells in the specimen can actually express pdl one And this is an example where you can see here uh, tumor cells uh, positive for membranous pdl one and then surrounding islets of macrophages also highly expressing pdl one this is actually normal and expected based on what I just told you, that interferon gamma is able to upregulate PDL1 in every cell that has interferon gamma receptors. So this can be problematic uh, when they are very admixed uh, and, and sometimes macrophages are difficult to distinguish from uh, non-highly atypical tumor cells. Um, so the, the usual uh, uh, solution here is just look carefully at the H&E or even perform immunohistochemistry for cytokeratin or CD68 if there is any major uh, decision-making point, particularly when this can be across the cut points. This is another example where this can be problematic. This is a largely negative pdl one tumor that you can see surrounding an islet of uh, macrophages that are within the tumor nest. So this is quite problematic because the morphology of the cells sometimes is not very evident. So this actually will be a negative uh, case with only positivity in those immune cells. So if we do go by tumor proportion score, it would be negative. If we go by combined proportion score, it will not be negative. So these are the kind of things that happen. Generally, a good morphological assessment, uh, zooming in and look at the nuclear morphology and the atypicality of cells is enough to rule out that there are tumor, non-tumor cells, but sometimes it's challenging and we need to be aware of that. Another um, example of this problem is given here, where you can see uh, this is a non-small cell lung cancer with focal areas of necrosis and then prominent immune infiltration surrounding those tumor nests. And you can see that within the tumor nest, there are these scattered positive cells with membranous reactivity, which could well be some macrophages and maybe some tumor cells. So really making a judgment in these cases becomes very challenging. Um, and then again, look at the morphology carefully, and eventually, if necessary, you can do immunohistochemistry to try to resolve it. In general, the cut points are relatively loose, you know, from 1% to 50%. So uh, putting the, the case within those thresholds is not a problem, but it can be in the context of 0 to 1%, because 1% essentially means any positive cell. Another example are uh, presence of necrosis that can actually bind non-specifically primary or secondary antibodies. So there is essentially non-specific accumulation of antibody and chromogen deposition on those areas. And you can see here, um, an, a tumor with a central area of necrosis with a chromogenic signal uh, focally. And then when you zoom in, you can see that those cells are uh, not viable uh, as evidenced uh, by the lack of nuclear uh, morphology and content, and there is pigment deposition. The most important thing here is that we should not interpret this as positive because it is a practice in pathology sometimes to see areas of necrotic tissue positive for cytokeratin to think that it was a carcinoma. But I think in this case, we cannot assume that this is a necrotic pdl one positive tumor. We can just uh, let it go and assume that if there's not membrane staining in tumor cells, we should not call it uh, TPS positive. And then this is another scenario that it's quite challenging, is that when we have a pdl one negative tumor, 
surrounded or at the interface uh, with the non-tumor tissue, uh, which has all the right to have alveolar macrophages that are positive for pdl one So this is important because if we were using uh, stromal scoring or immune cell scoring, we wouldn't know if to include these uh, immune cells into the tumor site or into the non-tumor site. So this is clinical judgment, and essentially we have to be aware that the, at the interface between tumor and non-tumor region, there may be non-tumor areas that have pdl one expression, and they should not be included in the scoring. So again, this is a potentially problematic um, case. This is mostly applicable to breast cancer, which is not in the label, as I mentioned anymore, but it's also true for other um, diseases, uh, which is only scoring the invasive component. Uh, and this is uh, typical, you know, that we have uh, sometimes even multiple foci where some of the foci don't have a clear invasive component. They should not be counted. This is an example of a, a DCIS around uh, inf invasive carcinoma of the breast. And you can see here that uh, there is some positivity in the immune cells surrounding this uh, ductal carcinoma in situ component. This should not be included in the scoring. Um, and that's uh, the way so far it's being uh, applied. Until we see data with uh, use of immunotherapy in, in non-invasive disease, this should not be considered for scoring. And then this is another example now in the context of gastric adenocarcinoma where necrosis can generate some problems. You can see here um, uh, this foveolar epithelium up here and then a focal necrosis here that looks pretty brown. Uh, when we look again at high power, we see a foci of necrotic tissue with some uh, chromogenic deposition, which is certainly not um, qualifies at pdl one positivity. Um, and then also, um, sometimes, particularly in small biopsies, you know, endoscopic biopsies uh, that are compressed, it may be very difficult to discern what is a tumor cell from what is a stromal cell. And this is another example in gastric adenocarcinoma from an endoscopic biopsy where you can see pdl one staining in this area um, surrounding this uh, epithelial glands, uh, but then really telling if these cells are tumor or non-tumor to do a, a proper CPS scoring is actually very challenging. Um, so uh, here, I don't have uh, much advice just to look carefully and try to do your best, uh, but sometimes it's very, very, very difficult to do. Um, finally, pdl one as I mentioned, can be heterogeneous. Um, this is an example of a lung carcinoma where you can see an area of carcinoma that is dead negative for pdl one and next door is a highly positive area. Uh, in this case, we just have to integrate the scoring. Um, and this is, uh, again, to see that it doesn't always look membranous. You can see here that it looks membranous plus something else. Um, so it, this can be challenging because discerning how many of these cells are actually membranous from the ones that are not can be tricky, uh, but you have to do your best call. And then finally, another example of um, heterogeneity in the context of an endoscopic gastric biopsy. You can see here two fragments of an endoscopic biopsy, both containing tumor, uh, but one of them only here in the upper fragment is actually positive focally for pdl one and the other one is dead negative. So this is another example of uh, extreme heterogeneity even within the same biopsy. Um, and the current solution is to just integrate the score. So we're going to move to the last part uh, now um, focusing on microsatellite instability, which as we just heard is a prominent biomarker, particularly in GI and GYN tumors. Um, so the, the whole field of microsatellite instability uh, relevance in the context of immunotherapy emerged from mostly studies by Luis Diaz and his team at that point at Hopkins, showing that this microsatellite instability positive or high tumors did actually uh, uh, derive a, a lot of benefit relative to non um, or MSS or MMR proficient tumors. 
Uh, and this actually what is extended to multiple different tumor types, which actually um, derived ultimately in the agnostic FDA approval for every uh, tumor type, uh, even in kids. Um, so, and this was actually confirmed in multiple studies, and this is one of such studies where the benefit of uh, mismatch repair deficiency high tumors or microcytic stability high tumors was uh, shown in a number of different tumor types that you can see here with overall response rates that range from 30 to high 50s. So this is actually quite prominent and is the reason why now um, MSI testing became so popular um, and so extensively used. We actually went from uh, doing very little MSI testing to now doing a lot uh, just because of this. And, and this actually has also uh, brought up some challenges. Um, and one of those challenges is how to use microcytic instability. Should we reflex test uh, cases or should we just select? Should we wait for the histology to be read and then um, request the MSI testing? Today, there are no uh, defined guidelines on how to do this. Uh, what we do know is there are a few tumor types, specifically three, that have very high rates of microsatellite instability, uh, which are essentially uterine carcinomas, colorectal and gastric, which are indicated here. Uh, and some institutions are uh, prioritizing reflex testing on those three and not on all the others that have very low rates. However, what we're seeing in the clinic is that in generally patients that progress and have advanced disease get MSI testing anyway as a way to potentially use immunotherapy. But then the other challenge is that this study, for example, that look at thousands of microsatellite loci, so not only five, which is what we look in the clinic, more than 200,000, actually found that between different tumor types, there are a number of different or differences in the number of loci that can be affected, which raises the question of maybe should we use different assays for different tumor types, or should the cut point be different? At this point, there's no data to support that we should do it, but there is the question, and we should be aware of that. And then, then the, the obvious question is how to test for microsatellite instability. There are two sort of main uh, assays that we have been using for a long time. They're fairly well standardized. One is the four marker immunohistochemistry with these four IHC, uh, which are typically read in the context of pathology. And they're rel relatively easy to use. They're widely available, uh, and they have a number of advantages. So they're fast, they're cheap, and they don't require germline DNA. So they're very uh, friendly for use. Um, and their high sensitivity estimated to be about 85%. So this is really a good assay, and generally most institutions are starting uh, with this uh, immunohistochemistry. But then there is the PCR-based assay, which is a five-mononucleotide marker uh, PCR with capillary electrophoresis and two pentanuclear markers. Uh, and this test is highly sensitive. You can see that it's over 90%, so it's a little bit better than immunohistochemistry but it, it's a little bit more complicated, not so available, and it also requires germline DNA, which is not always available. Sometimes there is a small biopsy and we don't really have non-tumor tissue to extract germline. Um, so, so it is a little bit more complex. Uh, I would say that today these uh, tests are complementary, and I think it's a common practice to screen using immunohistochemistry and then confirm using a PCR molecular test. There is also emerging um, algorithms to detect microsatellite instability using next-generation sequencing. There are at least five algorithms that have been reported, uh, but they're still not uh, at the level of um, uh, standardization that we need for use. So generally, it's immunohistochemistry plus minus capillary electrophoresis. 
And just are some examples of how that works. This is a, a perfectly normal uh, colorectal carcinoma, which you can see it's uh, nuclearly positive for the four um, mismatch repair deficient proteins, MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and PMS2. So this is the expected MSS uh, carcinoma. Uh, and this is a prototypical case uh, of a microsite instability high case, where you can see that uh, only MLH1 and PMS2 are negative in the tumor cells, but they're positive in the surrounding non-tumor lymphocytes. Um, so this is a typical and one of the common patterns which we, uh, we can identify microsatellite instability. Because life is not perfect, there are ambiguous cases, um, and we see them on and off. Uh, and this is an example of such case where you can see focal expression of MLH1 and very weak in some tumor cells, but not in other, um, and also um, the same with MSH2. The most important consideration in this case is rule out a technical error, just that the immunohistochemistry didn't work, or that the tissue may have a problem under fixation, over fixation, or something like that, which can generally be QC'd by the other markers. Well, if the tissue was bad, all the markers would have been negative. Uh, but in general, this can also reflect biology. Sometimes the mutations in mismatch repair genes are bad enough to compromise the function, but they're not bad enough to compromise the protein expression, and, or, uh, or they can compromise a little bit. So not infrequently, these cases with aberrant or uh, uh, unusual staining patterns are actually the ones that have mutations in one of the mismatch repair proteins. So just keep an eye on that. And so now we're going to focus on tumor mutational burden, which is the last of the FDA-approved um, biomarkers. Uh, and, and this biomarker has been uh, controversial in many ways because how difficult has been to standardize um, and to be very simple about what it is, a tumor mutational burden, is essentially counting the number of non-synonymous mutations per area of the genome analyzed. And the way it happens is that, uh, as an example, uh, we have a couple of type of mutations. Uh, for example, um, we have uh, silent mutations, or what we call synonymous mutations, which are mutations that don't change the amino acid, so they're not included in the tumor mutational burden. And then you have missense mutations and nonsense mutations, which are the ones we typically consider deleterious, so they affect the amino acid sequence, or sometimes they even produce an early stop or truncation of the protein. These are the ones that are actually counted in the non-synonymous um, mutation, tumor mutational burden score. And then there are a number of other genomic alterations that are generally not counted or counted only if detected, but they depend on different assays. So essentially, the definition is number of non-synonymous mutations detected per area of genome covered, whatever that area is. Uh, and there are a number of ways to detect that, and they really vary in the area of genome that is covered. Um, I would say that the gold standard today is holexome sequencing, which is essentially the whole a coding region, about 22,000 coding region genes, and it spans about 30 megabases of sequencing. Um, and it's actually very good at detecting all these mutations or coding mutations, but it's not very friendly to use because we don't really have great clinical pipelines to do um, holexome sequencing, at least not, not everywhere. Um, so it's not a great option to decide treatment. And then there are targeted uh, sequencing panels. Uh, these are two are FDA approved, uh, foundation and impact panel. And you can see that they span anywhere between 300 to 500 genes. They cover around one megabase of sequencing, which has been considered to be on the low end of uh, you know, requirement. In general, we believe that around two megabases of sequencing may be enough to actually have a reliable uh, tumor mutational burden call. But they have the major advantage that they are standardized, they're FDA approved, they're reimbursable in many cases, and they have a shorter turnaround time, which obviously helps clinically. Um, so today, I think there are still um, questions about what is the right assay to do and how to actually access 
that assay. Uh, and the relationship between um, high tumor mutational burden and activity of uh, immunotherapy agents has been uh, well established. Um, there are exceptions to those um, uh, relationships, uh, but I think in general we see that highly mutated tumors tend to be more sensitive than, um, than uh, tumors without uh, mutations. What is interesting about tumor mutational burden, when you think about it, is not a binary thing. It's actually a continuous metric, so we get a number of mutations. And then whenever we have a continuous metric, a big question is what is the right cut point? And this um, has been difficult to establish because as you can see in this uh, chart, uh, there is a clear relationship between the number of mutations or cut point and the hazard ratio with the highest uh, number of mutations having the lowest hazard ratio. So that means that the more, the upper the cut point, the better the benefit, but the fewer patients are positive. So the idea has been tried to balance a cut point that captures a lot of positive patients with a good hazard ratio that was established to be somewhere between 16 mutations per megabase and 20 mutations per megabase that have about a third of patients uh, positive depending on disease context and they seem to get the benefit. Uh, again, the data is still uh, quite controversial in some settings. Uh, but the most important point is that I want you to think about this as a continuous metric and not just as an on and off test. And then this has been validated, um, and this is some of the data that supported the, again, FDA agnostic approval of uh, tumor mutational burden. Um, and you can see here that across multiple different tumor types with actually quite different biologies, all the way from, you know, typical carcinomas to even neuroendocrine, small cell lung cancer, and thyroid tumors, there was a difference in, in the benefit um, of pembrolizumab in these patients that have high tumor mutational burden. So this, again, drove the approval uh, and it, it is a main reason why a lot of um, the people are requesting and using this uh, tumor mutational burden um, assay. There have been a lot of discussion about how to harmonize and standardize tumor mutational burden. Uh, and this is an effort from the Friends of Cancer Research. This was actually published in the Journal of Immunotherapy of Cancer in 2020. Uh, but I took this slide from a presentation because I think it shows exactly what is the problem which is that uh, essentially these are the same data from TCGA analyzed by 11 different labs, and you can see high correlations in the number of uh, mutations per megabase acquired, but they don't go in the 45-degree line. So they correlate, but the numerical value is actually different, and that can certainly impact the cut point. And the same thing happened uh, when uh, another TCGA layer was used when cell lines were used, but also with clinical specimens. And you can see here that they all correlate but they, they all deviate from the 45-degree axis. So with different tests, we will get a different numerical value, and they may actually be across the cut points. Um, so I think today we still don't know exactly how to standardize and, and report um, this type of assays. So now we're going to talk about the pathological um, response, and this is, as mentioned, has been um, really uh, coming fast into our um, clinics because of the uh, expansion in the use of uh, neoadjuvant immunotherapy. And we just mentioned that there is a recent approval um, for um, immunotherapy combined with chemotherapy in lung cancer. In this case, um, to try to address this problem, the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, the pathology um, committee, which I actually am a member of, um, we essentially established some guidelines to try to harmonize and uniform the way the pathology assessment is being done with the goal of first being able to collect data to understand how it's going on and second to be able to compare this um, uh, metric with outcomes down the road 
So at least we have something to work with and then we can learn on top rather than just using five different systems and then not being able to even learn. Um, so this is a kind of ongoing work and we expect uh, changes to this guideline to happen. But the fundamental principles of this is that uh, there is this uh, evaluation of the entire tumor bed. And this essentially includes locating the tumor bed, which sometimes sounds easier than it actually is to do, uh, and then mapping the tumor bed to be able to establish three components, the viable tumor, the necrosis area, and the stromal area. And then all of them should add to a total of 100%, which reflects the entire tumor bed. Um, so that's the way we should think about it. And then there is this pathology-complete response, which is zero viable tumor cells, major pathologic response, which is less than 10% viable tumor cells. And so far, as I mentioned, it's recommended for use with any treatment, chemotherapy, targeted therapy, immunotherapy, or combinations. But it may actually be learned down the road that we should incorporate other factors, for example, for immunotherapy, where inflammatory components may actually be relevant. Um, and to date, uh, again, we report this with 10% increments. Um, there is a, a call to call uh, very small increments as single digits, but in general, we score it using 10% increments and it's semi-quantitative. So it's not quantitative, it's an estimation, uh, but really depends on how the tissue was mapped. And because of that, there have been a number of recommendations that I won't read, but they're available in the practice aid in, in, on how to locate the tumor bed, how to use anatomical references, imaging, and actually pictures to be able to correlate the, the grossing with the microscopy, um, and then how to sample the suitable area. Um, there are a number of recommendations for small and large tumors, and essentially the question is how much we should submit from the specimen. Um, today, the principle is that the more, the better, um, to try to not leave areas uh, not looked at. And then there are also uh, recommendations relative to the histologic assessment, um, how to define borders, how to record the histologic features, and determination of the pathologic response. One thing that is very helpful that this recommendation includes a template that actually can be used um, to fill uh, questions relative to the primary tumor, the lymph node response, and then other information that is relevant. My recommendation is that um, using a standardized approach in the institution and a template is actually very helpful to make sure that all the specimens are handled in a, in a similar way, in that way, it's ac according to current principles. As I mentioned, there have been suggestions that um, in the context of immunotherapy, for example, uh, additional immune features such as tertiary lymphostructures, inflammation, vascularity, and other can actually contribute to the uh, evaluation of the immunotherapy response. Um, this study actually evaluated that, but this is still in the works, and I think for now we should stick to the standard designation until we know what are the differences between treatments and between histologies. There's actually um, suggestions that adenocarcinomas and squamous carcinomas may require different thresholds for ma uh, major pathological response, but again, that's to be determined. Great, and now we'll close with a brief look at the future. So where are we going from here, and what are the things to keep an eye on? Um, and there are a number of things going. One is refinement of biomarkers that we already know, for example, using tumor mutational burden, but now in blood ctDNA measurements. Combining things like RNA measurements of inflammation with PDL1 or mutations. We just mentioned um, the role of other immune inhibitory um, receptors, such as LAC3. Integration of biomarkers, I'll show a few examples, but there are novel things going. Um, for example, there are a number of patient based um, conditions, um, gut microbiome, HLA type use of antibiotics and other things that may actually affect response. So there is a lot going on uh, uh, and, and quite creative. This is an example of how um, 
combine, uh, combining PD-L1 and TMB may actually work. This is a study we published back in 2018 where we realized that TMB and PD-L1 were non-correlated, which means that they're orthogonal, they can be combined, and we saw high responses in patients that had both PD-L1 and high TMB. Uh, it's not usually the case, but when it happens, it can actually be a good marker. And then this is data from Checkmate 26, where you can see here in this survival curve that the patients with high TMB and high PDL1 were the ones that derived the most benefit, um, in this case, um, to immunotherapy. So this is an example of how things can be combined. Uh, this is data from Merck published in different tumor types using pembrolizumab, and they also uh, advocated for using a, a tumor mutational burden metric together with a gene expression profiling using the nanostring platform and 18 genes. Um, and they also saw that inflammation and tumor mutational burden could actually do better than either alone, um, giving room to this. And then other um, uh, possibilities are to use this in the context of multiplex immunofluorescence. This is uh, some of the panels we're using actually at Yale. Uh, we're moving them to the clinic, including PDL1 um, and immune cell markers, some of which have been shown to have value, so we can combine them and try to capture the information from all of them. Um, there are a lot of questions how to measure, how to score, and I won't talk too much about it, but if anyone has questions, I can address that later. We have published extensively on the expression of LAC3, PD-1, and TIM3 as metrics of T-cell dysfunction that have been associated with resistance to immunotherapy, but we have not been able yet to move them into a clinical-grade biomarker, but there's certainly information to be used in the T-cell dysfunction program. Um, and this is an example of how that can be used. We published a few years back that FGL1 was actually one of the major ligands of LAC3, and now that LAC3 was approved as a therapy, we're thinking that maybe FGL1 could be a good companion biomarker, and we're actually looking for that. Finally, I will briefly talk about liquid biopsy. This is something that it's quickly expanding. Um, it's actually generally used to detect uh, mutations, somatic mutations in, in periphery. Uh, it's actually very uh, sensitive, uh, but it can miss a lot of uh, positive cases. And this has been shown in this study comparing tumor versus blood, where about 25 to 40 percent of cases were not detected in blood, but were present in the tumor. So we need to be careful. Mostly the problems are false negatives. However, it has been shown that uh, cDNA changes can actually uh, locate, response, and be prognostic in the context of immunotherapy, and they actually precede the imaging. This is the number of days, actually. You can see that the cDNA changes occur earlier than the tissue imaging. So it's potentially a rapid way, non-invasive way, to monitor response. And this has been also been shown across different tumor types where um, residual uh, cDNA presence has been used to predict uh, response, um, in this case, uh, in a mostly prognostic fashion, but it's clear that uh, a lot of people are claiming for using cTDNA response criteria. So instead of only looking at the tumor, a dramatic uh, drop in the cTDNA content could be potentially used as a metric of response to treatment, and this will likely happen in the future. Uh, people have tried to look at tumor mutational burden in, in cTDNA, but today the data is not um, very solid, so it's not a recommendation to use blood tumor mutational burden. So with that, we close, um, and we have um, essentially no time uh, left, uh, but uh, I think we can uh, take questions um, with the audience, and the speakers will remain here for a while. Um, so with this, we close the program, and we thank everyone and people that are in their homes um, attending virtually for this uh, great meeting. Thank you very much.
This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KCV 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Merkin Company, Incorporated.